Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time now. Thank you for your word. We'd ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through my words and that you would edify us and build us up, Lord, by the study of your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. So 1 Samuel 26. If you've been with us, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. Doug reminded me, actually, the last time I taught was chapter 1. So it's been a while since I've been here. So we're picking it up right at the end of the book again for me, but it's been fun going through it. So 24 and 25, if you remember, David was in the wilderness on the run from Saul. We saw the episode where Saul went into the cave to relieve himself and David spared his life at that time and then we saw where David wanted to sort of take revenge against Nabal and this woman Abigail, his wife, Nabal's wife, intervened and sort of stopped David from doing anything rash and then Nabal died and Abigail became David's wife and 26 and 27 are are very similar chapters. In fact, some commentators almost sort of put them down as different versions of the same event. Uh, I do believe they are different events and we're going to treat them in that way. So let's read the narrative and I'm going to pull out a number of points as we go through. Chapter 26, let's read verses 1 to 5. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gilbea, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakila, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, before the road, beside the road. And David was staying in the wilderness. And when, when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, And David saw that place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Okay, so once again we meet these people called the Ziphites, and they are, once again, they betray David's whereabouts to Saul, uh, for whatever reason, trying to earn favour with the king. They did this before, if you remember, in chapter 23 or 24, I believe. Um, They do it again now. And we learn that Saul is once again... (coughs) taking their advice and he's in pursuit and he brings with him these 3,000 men to pursue David. David has about 600 men with him. He also has probably over 1,000, including women and children. So this is not... kind of when we, when we think of these accounts, we tend to just think of like an army or like we sort of think like a Braveheart-style situation where there's just these warriors out in the hills and men are being added to their number. But this is not really what we have here. We have you know, families, you know, like a whole sort of caravan, if you want to use that term, um, of people here that David's responsible for as they're being chased by Saul. But he has 3,000 men against Saul's 600, so he's fairly outnumbered. But David's smart, he sends spies out, he finds out where uh, Saul's army is, 3,000 men in the wilderness is probably quite easy to find. Um, And obviously... uh, for me, I think he focuses on this number quite a bit. It always says that Saul has 3,000 men. And you remember a little later on, we're going to see that David gets in trouble for numbering his people, for trusting in the strength of his army as opposed to the Lord God of Israel. And obviously, this is a good illustration of Saul's spiritual condition here. He's very confident and secure in the size of his army. Yet we know a king of Israel was never supposed to be confident in the size of his army. He was supposed to be confident in the God of Israel. And that's what we have here. Let's read verses 6 to 12. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishal the son of Zariah, Jerob's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? 
And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one strike, and I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw or knew it. Nor did any, any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. <clears throat> so we see here that Saul's army had decided to rest for the night, uh, kind of while, whilst in pursuit, obviously, in the wilderness. He was confident enough that they were all just going to... David's men obviously weren't a threat, they were going to sleep, and he would continue pursuing him the next day. Um, <laughs> I would really just, again, focus on... The confidence of Saul here. He's so confident that even in the midst of this pursuit, this is not his first time that he's tried to kill David, um, he's so confident that he's surrounded by army, you notice it says that he sleeps in the middle of his camp, which is probably common for a king, I'd imagine, but all the soldiers sleep around him. And it just says he was asleep in the middle of the camp. And I'd say he was probably sleeping soundly, confident that he had Abner next to him, guarding him, and he had 3,000 troops guarding around him. Now, one thing you'll notice in the Bible, sleep. Sleep is often used in a very spiritual way. Uh, it's spirit, spiritual lethargy, if you want to use that term. And I think this really points, it's characteristic of Saul's life. He's, he was asleep here, but he was also very asleep spiritually by this point in his life. He had self-confidence, and this is really the thing that often lulls a sinner's heart to sleep. <clears throat> How many times have you heard when you're witnessing to someone that they don't just feel they just don't see a need for God in their life. They're perfectly fine and confident in their own ability. Uh, I've found this with people I've witnessed to before. There's just no way you can really get through to them. They're just completely hardened in that area, considering themselves to be good people, um, better than all the other people that they could point fingers at. So why do they really need God? This is spiritual sleep. Satan leads them into danger when they're in this situation. You remember Jonah? He slept in the storm, didn't he? <clears throat> you remember Samson? Fell asleep on the lap of Delilah while the Philistines were at his door. You remember Sisera, the king who slept in the tent of Jael before she... You know that story. And so it is that people who don't have Christ in their life, they sleep with the terrors of God's wrath impending at their door. We find the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5. What does he say? He says, Awake! O sleeper, awake, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah there, awake and arise from the dead that Christ will shine upon you. Awake, O sleeper. You see, this sort of spiritual slumber that we have often, unfortunately it's not just unbelievers, obviously they are dead in trespass and sins, but all too often we find this in the church. Often the admonitions to wake up are addressed to the church, which would indicate that we have a tendency to sleep when we shouldn't. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. 
We'll look at the words of Christ. Mark 13 is the sort of the Markan version of the, the Olivet Discourse, which is sort of Christ's prophetic teaching. <clears throat> Mark 13, verse 32. Jesus says, Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 33. Be on guard, keep awake, for you don't, do not know what, when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And look at verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. It's quite emphatic language that we see over and over in the New Testament. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when he comes. 1 Thessalonians 5. So then let us not sleep as others do, but be awake and sober. If you read 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you'll find the theme of day and night, awake and asleep, are the sort of motifs that Paul sort of crafts his whole discourse around in those epistles. We have this uncanny way of falling asleep, probably at the times when we most need to be awake. In, uh, have you ever heard of the Great Awakening? It's a kind of a term given to a, one of the spiritual revivals. Um, there's the first Great Awakening, there's the second Great Awakening. Um, and I've noticed church historians now are actually calling um, the third Great Awakening the Jesus Revolution, which is obviously the where Calvary Chapels and these sorts of churches sprung from. Um, that's actually a term now that, that's kind of quite agreed upon in church history, which I find really interesting. But during the first Great Awakening, so like 1735 and six, Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher, one of their best theologians, preached some very famous sermons. He was involved in preaching. Uh, he gives a bit of advice. Uh, kind of during the revival when he was starting to see the wane of the revival, sort of the manifestation of God's presence was becoming less and less. Um, and he said the people were starting to sleep, is how he, how he phrased it. And often in his sermons, if you've ever listened or read a transcript rather, of his sermons, they're, they're deep, they're weighty, they're heavy theological topics that he, he used to delve into. But every now and then he strayed from that and he kind of approached some very practical and down-to-earth matters. Here's one little extract from one of his sermons. He says, Here I would particularly desire that you would not suffer those that sit by you to sit sleeping at meeting, but wake one another when anything of that appears, and let none of the godly live, give way so much to their corruption as to take it ill when others admonish them, when others jog them to wake them either out of their natural sleep in time of public worship or their spiritual sleep by friendly admonition. (coughs) Now, quite a mouthful what he's basically saying is if you see your friend next to you asleep in church wake him up okay and what he's basically then saying to the people who's been woken up is and don't you be annoyed about it you've been woken up for good reason that's jonathan edwards it's not me i'm not saying that (laughs) but that's what he was doing and obviously notice that he says obviously he's talking about their spiritual sleep too we are to hold one another accountable we're to encourage one another to, to good deeds and love and these sorts of things spare each other on in the face you see, oftentimes I believe, and it's probably a Western problem, uh, the security maybe that we have in the West, in our way of life over here, has a way of dulling our senses. We have, we're busy, we have a million and one things going on. Um, we have freedoms that we, most of us, uh, you know, have never really known any, uh, any other way any different. 
we read things about the persecuted church and we read them and they, they make us weep, but we don't really have first-hand experience of those things in ourselves. And not all of us, I know some of you are, see some of you nodding there, but generally I'm speaking about us here. But I think the freedoms we have are in danger of being eroded. And I think that is because we might just say we are sleeping a little bit. You see, when you know, if you, you read, you follow the persecuted church in India, particularly, um, you know, one of their worries is will someone drop a hand grenade through the window when they go to church on Sunday morning? Um, you know, in China at the moment, the church is being pushed underground. Crosses, crosses are removed from buildings. Unregistered churches are shut down. Um, to come out as a Christian in many of these places could cost you your job, your life, your families, your freedom. You know, I very much doubt you get people sitting in the pews who don't really want to be in the pews and who are there to fall asleep during sermons at that time. Uh, I just, when I read these people's accounts, I, I sense an urgency for God. And it's a spiritual awake, awakeness, we could call it, as opposed to a spiritual slumber. You see, in our country now, <laughs> if we had to worry about those sorts of things, I'd imagine we'd wake up pretty quick. Not that I'd ever wish those sorts of things on the body of Christ. I pray that we would be able to just repent and wake up simply from reading the scripture, Awake, O Sleeper. But the Lord knows where his church is at. You see, the sort of extremism that would do things like you see in Egypt with the attacks on the cops and these sorts of things, in our country, we are classed in the same category as them. You see, while we're sleeping, we are are being classed as extremists. To do things like that is put in the same category as supporting traditional marriage, if you could believe it or not. Just recently, this last week, there was a big article about the police contacted a man because he liked something on Twitter that was anti-LGBT. He didn't write it, he just liked it. And he had two or three uh, hours of conversation with a, with a high-up police officer who were basically telling him, quote, to check his thinking. You see, this is what we see here, the police becoming the thought police. And the thought police are being used to enforce a political ideology or whatever it may be, to enforce a, a religion, or all these things can change, but this is a very dangerous situation. And you see, what I mainly see is that we can sort of just flick on the TV and just forget about it. It's not really happening to us yet, so we don't worry about it. And I would say that's a slumber. If you, may have, you may have heard this, this uh, I think it was just on Monday this week, Pope Francis... He met with uh, Sheikh Al-Qaib, who is, uh, he's like the leading Sunni, Mus- Sunni Muslim sheikh of the, uh, the, the Al-Azhar University in Cairo, which is like the, the central seminary of Sunni Islam. And he had a historic meeting they haven't met for a long time to open a dialogue and a conversation. Um, the, <laughs> the Daily Mail reported it. To reopen dialogue between the two churches, one newspaper said. It's fun that, just the two, the two churches... Catholicism and Sunni Islam they're talking about. It's just ridiculous. But if you followed along with what Pope Francis has been saying for the last couple of years, he has a very invested view in Islam. He makes no shame that he believes that Allah is the same as his God, that we are brothers in that sense, and he wants to sort of open a dialogue. Now, we may see we've been hearing about things about the one world religion in Christian circles for many, many years. But does that mean it's not true? You see, these are signs of the time. And when, remember when Jesus castigated his disciples 
for saying that you can see when the you know red sky at night sort of thing, you can see when it's going to be a bad day, but you don't know the signs of the times. These are the things we need to know. We know from the Bible that there will be a conglomeration of religions. I happen to believe that Islam and Catholicism will both pay, play a part in that. We see these things happening. Let me read you a couple of quotes from Pope Francis that he said in regard to this. Someone challenged him, obviously, about the nature of Islam. And he says, It is true that the idea of conquest is inherent in the soul of Islam. However, it is also possible to interpret the objective in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus sends his disciples to all nations in terms of the same idea of conquest. Now look, respect to the Pope and all that, whatever, that's a ridiculous statement. Okay, that someone with such sort of theological error who can, can sort of compare the conquests of Islam during the 6th and 7th and you know, century as they spread across the Arabian Peninsula to the spread of Christianity, the command that Jesus has to go out and preach the gospel to all nations... It's just unbelievable. But this is, this is the, the leader of one of the largest religious institutions in the world. Quite a powerful one. He says, you know, and he's, he's not content to just kind of have his, uh, his domain in Vatican City and those sorts of places. This is what he says about Europe. He says he hates it when he hears Christians talk about the Christian roots of Europe. He says it smacks of colonialism, which is obviously a very... You know, he's obviously kind of pandering to the, the zeitgeist of the time and all these sorts of charges. He says this, rather than be concerned about that, we should be insisting that all of the nations um, have, you know, integrate Muslims into their society. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, that we need to be fearful of Muslims or not integrate them into the society when they're here. But the way Pope Francis is speaking is he's got a slightly different motive underneath. He says this, The integration is all the more necessary today since, as a result of a selfish search for well-being, Europe is experiencing a grave problem of a declining birth rate. He said, A demographic emptiness is developing. Let me translate that for you. <clears throat> because we have <laughs> sort of a generation that you know, this, we're kind of products of the sexual revolution of the 60s in many, in many respects. We kill a lot of our babies now, and there's a big gap happening, whereas Muslims don't. They have eight or nine, they have huge, huge families. Um, therefore, within 50 years, it's said that Europe, as we know it, will not exist. But his, his solution is that we actually need to accept more Muslim migrants into the country to fill the void left. Now, again... I'm not arguing, I'm not trying to make a political point in any way here. All I'm saying is that this is the leader of the church, and his solution is that. I'd say he's, you know, I think he's absolutely completely asleep, but the solution should be what he criticised earlier, what Matthew commanded, to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, not to try and fill a void by importing a different religion because he thinks it's the same. You just see how easy this stuff could happen. Um, and yet I hear very little about it from the church. And I would say that's because the church is sleeping. Let us make sure that we are not sleeping. Awake, O sleeper, and arise, that Christ will shine on you. Paul goes on and he writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not being unwise, but being wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's not sleep. Saul is asleep here. David takes Abishai with him into the camp. 
Abishai basically says, let me kill him, I'll do it in one shot. He's a professional soldier. He says, I won't even need two, it'll be a clean kill, is basically what he's saying. And David says, no, you can't do that, he's the Lord's anointed. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. Now, if you've ever heard any of the tele-evangelists, or kind of, they've kind of waned in popularity a little bit in our country anyway, but um, they were big sort of ten years ago. One thing you'd often hear from them is when they were criticised for teaching false doctrine or for kind of fleecing people, they would say, touch not my anointed. They would say, touch not my anointed. And in their context, they're meaning, don't you dare criticise me because I'm, I'm anointed by the Lord to do this. Now, contextually, ridiculous. Um, that's not what Saul, you know. Saul was very happy to tell the truth about, David was very happy to tell Saul what he was doing wrong. But what he meant was, like Doug said last week, it was the office of the king of Israel that he was respecting there. Touch not my anointed was referring, you know, to killing the king of Israel, not to pointing out false doctrine. Just bear that in mind in case you ever hear that phrase. David wanted to leave a message without, obviously, overstepping his bounds, so he took the spear. Now, obviously, that spear was probably the same spear. You remember when Saul first started trying to kill David? You have that passage where he threw that spear at him. A few times that happened. That was probably the same spear. So it was very tempting, I'd imagine, for, for David to want to use that spear at this time, but I think he'd learnt the lesson from a few few chapters before. Let's read verses 13 to 16. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. See, rather than make fun of the king, that he he came right up to him, stole his stuff, uh, he actually chooses to make fun of the bodyguard, Abner, who was supposed to be protecting the king. Let's just carry on. Then Saul recognised David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the lord, for they have driven me out today, so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So we have this, you know, obviously Saul's taunting Abner. Uh, David, sorry, is taunting Abner. Saul recognises his voice. Remember, it was his father-in-law in that respect. They were family. And then David kind of continues to ask, you know, why are you pursuing me again? What have I done against you? I've done you no wrong. Let's just finish the, I'll just finish the end of the chapter and then we'll make some comments. <clears throat> then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. And behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today. But I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress.
Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Today, So now we have 21. Saul said, I have sinned. This sort of confession that we have from Saul's mouth. Now let me ask you, is this a sincere conf- confession? Have we not heard this sort of thing before from Saul? You see, it's very easy to say the right words, particularly when you're pressed in a situation where you're kind of being pushed. You've been thrust into a situation where you've sort of been exposed and you don't really want to be in that situation. It's very easy to say the right word, but obviously words really mean nothing unless they're followed by actions. And We know that the Lord sees the hearts. You remember many times in the Bible this phrase is used to illustrate this point. What did Pharaoh say to Moses? Exodus 9, 27. He said, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. But we, we go on to know that he didn't, you know, he hardened his heart again. Balaam, that character, he said to the angel, he said, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. But yet we know how Balaam went. And then probably most famously of all, Judas, Matthew 27, verse 4. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's almost like this little phrase, I have sinned. It's almost like a, the definition of a false, a false repentance that we have here. You see it with, with the, prodigal, the prodigal son in some instances too. But he says, I have sinned. Then he goes on to say, I have also played the fool. <clears throat> I find this interesting. This could really be the summation of Saul's life at this point. These are some of his final words. Almost, you know, he's for a few more chapters and then uh, Saul is out of the picture. He says, I have played the fool. He was a fool in the way he treated David. A fool generally is someone who does not learn from his experience. Yet he had these experiences with David. Just two chapters earlier, we saw that David spared his life. Now we've seen the exact same thing has sort of happened again. He was a fool in the way he treated Jonathan, in the way he treated his army, in the way he was treating his nation, and ultimately the way he was treating his God. Proverbs 26, verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, if I could be slightly harsh to all of us, we probably all follow in the character of Saul in some respects in this instance. How many of us has repeated the same sin? One that we said we would not do again when we came to the Lord to confess it. But yet we find ourselves in these same situations. We even find ourselves going down the same routes, following the same breadcrumbs to the same temptations, knowing where the end result will be. We're fools in many ways. Oh, but for the grace of God, we could say at that point. There's a lot of truth. It's been said, one theologian put it like this, the greatest and most difficult problem within the Church of God, of, with which the Church of God has had to face in all ages and has had to try and solve is this, how to prevent men and women playing the fool. Now let's be honest, we know there's some truth in that statement. You see, with all our knowledge, even with all our advancements in science, technology, all our biblical materials that we have, our educations, our you know, training institutions, these things alone are not enough to prevent man playing the fool. We know that we need the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But we know ultimately our destiny is dependent on something else. We'll talk about that a bit more. What does this really mean, though, playing the fool? In the Bible, it kind of has quite a specific purpose. You may be familiar with the, the Psalm 14, Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Folly, in a biblical sense, is really banishing God from life, removing God from the public square, from the private sphere particularly. No God for me, 
Not in my life, not in my home, not in my bedroom, not in my politics, not in my education, not in my government. Is that really not the mantra of our culture today? When you see every cultural battle going place, can it not all be brought back to this issue? No, God. We have some, there's a thing going through Parliament at the moment, trying to remove prayers from starting Parliament. Um, you know, there's just these things happen all the time. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You remember September 11th, the events that happened in America. <clears throat> on, I think like two days after that, Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, she appeared on NBC and she was asked this question. I've heard people say to those who are religious, if God is good, how can, this, how can God let this happen? And to that you would say, and then the interviewer handed over to her and she replied, she said these words. I say God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also for several years now, Americans in a sense have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business, we want you out of our marketplace. And God, being a gentleman, has quietly backed out of our national and political life and our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. We need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we are sorry we have treated you this way and we invite you now to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. It was a very great answer for a sort of staged interview question like that. She was not spiritually asleep. She was spiritually awake. We have to make sure that we don't play the fool. Remember in Deuteronomy 30 where uh, it said that, you know, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Remember that verse? You see that sort of theme. What that really means, choose life, means choose God in the context. That's what it's talking about. Choose to follow God. God is life. He's the ultimate source of life. Therefore, to reject God is to reject life itself. This is why Jesus says he has come to give us life in the fullness. These things are all connected. You see, when a man walks in folly, he's walking in outright rejection of God, which ultimately is rejection of life itself. Someone mentioned it, I think Lizzie just mentioned it in the prayer. You may have seen in January in New York, legislators passed the Reproductive Health Act. It's a fancy term. Basically, it made it legal for doctors and healthcare professionals, also midwives and physician assistants, to perform abortions up until birth for any reason in the state, abortion on demand up until birth. Now, what was shocking about this was obviously the fact of it alone is shocking. Um, but if you saw the did anyone see the video? Yeah. The way they clapped and they cheered, the whole house was just up, up on there. It was chilling to watch. Outside, there were people cheering and chanting, abortion on demand, can we do it? Yes, we can. And it was, it was, it was chilling to watch. Um, the governor, Andrew Cumiano, Cumo, I don't know how to pronounce his name, governor of New York, he made a statement when challenged about it, and he said, conservatives are not welcome in New York. What he means by that is people who would oppose what, what we've just said are not welcome in New York. And in honour of what I've just done, and he lit up one of the Freedom Towers, bright pink, to celebrate that act. Now, a lot could be said about that. I find it just unbelievably shocking. Um, and I, you know, is, it, is that any different? I just don't see how that is any different to what we read about in the Old Testament, to what Christianity spent years and years of our early day outlawing in many, many places. They call it infanticide. You may have followed just two days ago the governor of Virginia, forget his name now, he was on the radio. He was referencing a bill that one of the Democrats was trying to put through that would allow abortion up to 40 weeks and during birth. So someone posed him the question, what if a woman during labour decided she wanted to have it during labour? decided she wanted to have an abortion. And this is exactly what he said. In this particular example, if the mother is in labour, I can tell you exactly what would happen. 
the infant would be delivered, the infant would be kept comfortable, and then a discussion would ensue between the physician and the mother. Now that's a very polite way of saying they would have a conversation whether they would keep that baby alive or not. Now, you know, we could make a lot of points over that, but for me, I just call that, that's just rank murder. And I think every doctor or every midwife who's involved in that is guilty. You know, you don't have, we saw the Hebrew midwives back in the book of Exodus, didn't we? They refused to do those sorts of things. That is where we are right now. You see, God's saying, choose life. But when you reject God, you ultimately will end up with a culture of death. The Netherlands, euthanasia capital of the world right now. Article just came out in The Guardian. And The Guardian's kind of a left-leaning newspaper. That, so for them to print this is quite, quite, quite a lot. <coughs> it said, if Western society continues to follow the Dutch, Belgian and Canadian examples, it's all euthanasia where it's legal, there is every chance that in a few decades' time euthanasia will be one widely available option from a menu of possible deaths, including an end-of-life poison pill available on demand to anyone who finds life unbearable. That's already in the process of happening. An end-of-life pill available to anyone on demand. Now, they may, they may throw at you cases about you know, people who are seriously ill and have no quality of life, but that's not what he says. Anyone who finds life unbearable. You see, depressed teenagers can go over and get euthanized in these places. You see, this is a culture of death. But God says choose life. This is, fo- this is foolishness to the, to the ultimate degree. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I think as one thing we have to make sure, those Christians, of all the things that are going to be said of us, that are probably quite derogatory, we need to make sure that what is said of us, that we don't kill our young and we don't kill our old. That was what stood out about the church in the, old, you know, in the early days of the church. I'm not sure if it necessarily does in these days of, of the church. I'd say it does in some places, but I think we need to do a better job at that. But that's what happens. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. And I would say Saul played the fool at this situation. You look at Saul's life, he's basically went his own way. Giving lip service to God, his life is marked by a continual attempt to do things his own way independent from God. This was his folly. He tried to get on without God. That's basically what it means, which will ultimately, like I said, lead to death. I believe his desire to kill David was out of his folly, his continued attempt to pursue and kill David. You see, you have two prominent souls in the Bible. I found this interesting. <clears throat> one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. One of the sort of the last words of Saul, not the last words, like final, final words, but the last words we have in this sort of chapter, he says, I've played the fool. And ultimately he forfeited his crown, didn't he, by his folly. We have another Saul in the New Testament. At the end of his life he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and I have waiting for me in heaven a crown of righteousness. That's obviously the Apostle Paul, Saul, there. Verse 24. So may my life... Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Now I like this little verse, because you see David's heart, that he wants his life to be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. What is our value in the sight of the Lord? How do you work out value? Generally, you work out what someone is willing to pay for you. And see, the truth is, that is over and over throughout the whole of Scripture, is that you are worth the death of God's only Son. Okay? Now this is not something for pride, this is not because we have something inherent in us that was worthy of us, it's simply because it's, it's, from, it's how much the one who is paying loves us. Mm-hmm. You could walk into a shop and see something that's not particularly valuable, 
But if it was valuable to you because you knew something about it that other people didn't know, you would pay as much as you could for it. There's nothing inherently good in us except, you know, we're sinners, we're fallen, except for the fact that God has prepared a future for us. He's prepared a place that is glorious for us. He created us and we're made in his image as image bearers. And God has paid with his own blood for us. You see, it's not how God the purchaser, rather, sorry, it's, you know, it's not how we see ourselves as the purchased. There are times when we probably don't feel particularly loved or particularly valued in our world. But the really important thing is, is how God the purchaser sees you. And the testimony of Scripture again and again is that Doug just said that the Lord wanted him to say, for God so loved the world. That's the truth of Scripture. Verse 25 are the final words of Saul to David. These are the final words you'll see. Never again does the Bible indicate that, um, that Saul would go on to attack David. And it says they depart, they left each other, returned to this place. Saul, obviously, he left in disgrace and he ended in death. David goes on to glory and victory. We've got about five minutes left. We're going to do chapter 27 in that time because otherwise it would leave us in a real sort of limbo as we change topics next week to the the Witcher Endor. Let's just read read the whole chapter because I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. We've just got a few things I want to pull out about it. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, um, Ahiohim the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath. Thank you. So he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favour in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave Ziklag that day, gave, gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gizurites, and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, and he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing, and then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you been? Where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeheramelites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell, us, tell about us, saying, so has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among his people Israel, therefore he will become my servant forever. <clears throat> I know that's a lot of narrative, You can tell my voice is suffering from that. Um, We have the situation here. In spite of Saul's last sort of words to David, you know, that you're going to go on, you're going to do great things, David doesn't really trust him. And he says to himself, you know, I need to get out of here. And he goes into the land of the Philistines. You see, I believe we see a little glimpse here of David maybe walking in a bit of folly. 
Um, I don't think he should have really gone to the land of the Philistines. He didn't seek the Lord on that, and he ends up in a real mess. He ends up in the Lord, <laughs> fighting, almost fighting against his fellow Israelites, <coughs> raiding, killing, lying, all sorts of things that he gets sort of sucked into by his own deceit in these areas. What I want to do is just very quickly trace the steps and the sequences of David's entanglement with sin here. The start of his troubles, you see them in verse 1. David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's kind of pictured as having a conversation with himself. He's listening to his own voice, basically. Now how many many times have you done this? Where we get ourselves in trouble by listening to the thought what's going on in our head. Imagining situations differently than they really are. Listening to interpretations and miscalculating things and therefore making wrong conclusions about things, which ultimately lead us to making wrong choices. We all do that. First thing we should do is talk to God. David here is talking to himself, and like we see, he ends up in quite a terrible state. And as we'll see in the next few chapters, it's not just that they were living there, you know, there was a lot of bloodshed that happened. Wrong thinking leads to wrong feelings. Notice how many times... You know, he says in verse, in verse 1, I and me, I and me, I must do this, they're going to get me. You know, he starts to feel you know, sorry for himself. He has got to, had a very hard situation for the last eight or so years. But he's thinking about himself. He's self-centred rather than God-centred at this particular time. Self-focused, I should say, not self-centred, rather than God-focused. And ultimately this leads to wrong actions. He did not seek the Lord when he went to Gath. And this leads to the wrong company. Notice the train there. Wrong thinking, wrong feelings, wrong actions, wrong company. Very often you'll find these things all go together. He decides to go to the king of Gath. Now this is, I find this interesting. What do we know? Who who do we know that was from Gath? Goliath. This is the hometown of Goliath. David is the giant killer. You know, they would have known his, his name at this point. And now he's on the run seeking shelter from the king of Gath at this time. That's kind of ironic in that sense. The king at this time, a man called Achish, he obviously sees um, a kind of an opportunity here because he, he's obviously heard about the feud between Saul and, and David at this time and he thinks that he could use David to good effect. You know, he's thinking like a sort of a, a local sort of tribe leader, a king, and what could he use David and his 600, 600 men for at this time. David's also playing a game sort of deceiving him and he's saying you let us go and live down in this area it's about 20 miles from the main capital of the city he carries on sort of raiding the little outskirts of the, the old Canaanites who are in the land um, and the whole thing's a bit of a mess really David's trying to play both sides pretend that he's loyal to the king of Gath also not kill any of the Israelites at this stage, um, he's killing the Canaanites um, but he's saying to the king of Achish that he's actually killing the Israelites so the king of Israelite, that's why the, the king of Gath says, great, he's making himself even more odious to his people. Therefore, he'll truly be on my side when we come to have a proper war with the Israelites, which happens in the, you know, shortly in the next few chapters we see that. But ultimately, before he knew it, he was lying, he was fighting, and I say he was trapped in the deceitfulness of sin. He ended up in a place that he never really thought he would be. We learn in the next few chapters, he's on the verge of going to war with the children of Israel when he is supposed to be the anointed king of Israel. I'm sure he never thought he'd be there. <clears throat> but he fled into enemy territory. And one interesting thing is that there was no psalms associated with David for this year and four months that he's here. They called the sweet singer of Israel, they call him. 
There's psalms associated with him when he's in the wilderness. I think we alluded to come a few weeks ago. There's quite a few psalms he wrote when he was hiding in the cave and when David Saul was chasing him. This is a silent period. I believe it's you know, for those very reasons. It reminds me of a story, and we'll, we'll end just after this. Some of you may remember the name Jim Baker. He was a televangelist. He used to run the Praise the Lord Club in the 80s or 90s, I believe. Now, you won't often really find me saying too, too much. I don't have huge amounts good to say, so I just don't say it about televangelists. But for the sake of, you know, I'm willing to grant that many of them probably started out with honest intentions serving the Lord as their ministries grew, as money came in, as opportunities opened themselves. Temptation follows. The PTL Club was huge. It was massive. It was doing a lot of work. They preached the gospel. They had Billy Graham and all different Christian leaders on this thing over its history. It ended in sexual and financial scandal, and it was a huge scandal for the church. Uh, Jim Baker was the head of that. He was put in prison. He tells a story about how Billy Graham came to visit him in prison. Now, you see, a few years back, I very much doubt that he saw himself being in prison. He narrates it like this. He says, when I was in prison... In my lowest days, probably in my lowest moment up to that prison, I was sick with pneumonia. I never once laid in my bunk in my cell. I did not do my job. I was made to clean toilets for five years. And every day I would lie there, I felt like I needed to die. One morning I was cleaning the toilets. I had my cleaning shoes on with holes and my toes poking out. I had mess from the latrines all over my outfit. And the guard said to me, Baker, you have a visitor. And he said... I said, it's not visiting day. Who is it? And he said, you need to go to the warden's office right now. And I said, oh no, God help me, I'm in trouble. He said, I have my old clothes, my wrinkled toilet cleaning clothes, not my family visiting clothes. You were allowed two different sets. My hair was dishevelled. My face was worn. I was ill. I was sick. I looked like a man that had been sleeping under a bridge for years. I walked over to the warden's office across the prison yard and I stood there and suddenly came out of the office Uh, So somebody came out of the office and said, Baker, you have a visitor. And I said, it's not visiting day, who's here? And he said, has nobody told you? It's Billy Graham who's here. Do you want to see him? I looked down at my shoes with my toes hanging out, my wrinkled clothes. I was sick, I looked bad. And I thought, the last time I saw Billy, he was a guest on my show. The last time I'd been with Billy Graham, we chatted with each other live on TV with a who's who of the evangelical world. But he'd come, so I had to see him. I walked into the room, and the warden was there, assistant wardens, everybody was there who wanted to see Billy Graham. But when I walked in, all I could see was this six-foot-something man, and I'm a five-foot-something guy. And I walked in, he threw his arms around me, and he held me, and he said in my ear, Jim, I love you. I thought to myself, how could anybody love me looking like this? I've been disgraced to the world. And a man who on the radio before I'd heard was considered to be one of the most respected men in America at that time. And here he is in my prison holding me in his arms, telling me that he loved me. And I didn't feel loved very much anymore. You see, I, you know, I feel for that guy there. The deceitfulness of sin, you know, sex and money. <laughs> you know, but a lot of people have fallen through that. It's one of the main ways that Satan gets us. David himself fell through those sorts of things. But yet, he's here. And then we have Billy Graham, who in this sense... You know what the story reminds me of? The prodigal son. You know when the father just comes out and he sees his son coming back from doing what he's been doing? He just wraps his arm around him and he says, I love you. 
And this is the sort of thing. You see, David and Saul, they had low points in their life. As Christians, we all will have low points. But there are some things we need to learn from it. You see, God always is there with his arms open to hold out a gracious arm of forgiveness to us if we humble ourselves and confess our sin. That's the key point. If we humble ourselves and confess our sin. We may have times where folly deceives us to walk in, to, in its way. It's the, whole, it's the whole what the book of Proverbs is about, wisdom and folly. But Saul does not deceive himself, does not humble rather. David does humble himself. I'll finish with the words of the Apostle Paul. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. I think we all need to be awake. Take heed, lest we fall, and throw ourselves onto the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you so much for your word. There's so many truths and just glorious things in it for us. And we pray that you would equip them and put them deep into our hearts, Lord, that we would live them out, that we would be a witness for you in this world. We pray, Lord, for your power to do this. We thank you, Lord, that you're willing to forgive, that your arms are always open wide to your children. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.